You're listening to the Creating Sales Stars podcast, hosted by Pete Evans. Each episode, Pete will be joined by some of the big and upcoming names within the sales industry, with insightful guests joining us from all around the globe. This is brought to you by Sales Star UK. Welcome to this week's edition of Creating Sales Stars podcast. Um, this week, I'm joined by my uh, colleague and our head of performance coaching in for Sales Star in the UK, uh, Tim Ogle. And this week's guest is uh, Chris Williams. So Chris is... Uh, a passionate partnerships professional, amateur sportsman, TEDx speaker, student of psychology and general enthusiast about the transformational potential of sports, psychology and, and physical challenge. And Chris currently works at British Cycling, um, where he's got the privilege of leading a sport that connects with over half the UK's adult population. Through working collaboratively, his partnerships can be catalysts for positive impact across all areas of the sport and using this platform to tackle key societal challenges. Um, and according to your LinkedIn profile, Chris, so we have done some research, you are the proud owner of a crazy story from the Mid-Atlantic. So if we get time at the end, you may get asked a question about that. Um, so Chris, we uh, welcome to this week's edition of Creating Sales Our Podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Pete. I appreciate the intro and good to, good to speak to you as well, Tim. Pete, I, I know that you haven't uh, referenced it there, but you know, as part of that crazy run that you spoke about, obviously you were uh, my comrade for for part of that. So uh, it will be good to see you again and uh, hear some of your own stories as well. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, I, I wanted to start off with the uh, um, the whole hundred mile challenge that you did with uh, with Simon Dent and and Jamie Peacock. So you're the third person who participated in that run that we uh, we've had as a podcast uh, guest and. Just recently, we had uh, Simon Den. So I, I was going to ask you, you know, what 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 motivated you to get involved in running a hundred miles in, you know, just less than twenty four hours? What what was the driver for you? Yeah, Pete. I mean, good question. It, it's you have to dig quite deep, I think, to to really answer that honestly. I think there's some initial ones that you know, some there's some sort of sometimes some quite superficial reasons for for why you're tempted to do these things. Um, you know, I, I find that instinctively when an opportunity like that presents itself to me, I find it, I navigate towards saying yes. <laughs> and so actually digging into why that's the case has been um, quite a bit of a fascination for me. Uh, you mentioned there about my story from the Mid-Atlantic, and I think that goes back now about seven years since I said yes to a, a different silly challenge. And that was, you know, one of my mates asking me if I wanted to try and row across the Atlantic Ocean. At that point, I'd never been on a, a rowing boat. I'd never really been uh, at sea unless I was maybe on holiday on a on a on a <laughs> on something a bit more comfortable with a nice cold drink in my hand, um, and I, I naturally navigated towards saying yes. So I think what I do have is I've I've got a, a keenness and to explore my own potential. I know that about myself, and I think doing these physical challenges, you know, what I've realised is that that they push you to to places which, you know, your everyday doesn't take you, and and forces growth. And for me, that that's kind of the key motivator here is I believe that with these challenges comes opportunities. I think that the 100 miles in particular was one of those things which I said yes to. And then obviously you realize, right, OK, you work back on right 100 miles. How far have I run in the past? Well, I'd done a marathon before, so I'd, you know, I'd had a decent amount of running in me at times. But, you know, for me, a marathon was an epic challenge. And then 
now I'm signing myself up to do 100 miles in a day. So what, nearly four marathons in the course of a day. And and what you find quite quickly is that a marathon no longer feels long <laughs> because you, you've, you've sort of already broken through just through your commitment. You've broken through that ceiling that you might have put on yourself in terms of what you're capable of. So for me, it's all about unlocking um, maybe some of those sort of self you know conceived restrictions or limits that you might have for yourself and 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 i think you know it's been a few of these things now that i've taken on in my life and all of them have great story (laughs) and all of them provide me with amazing memories and and help me sort of become the person that i want to be so yeah there's a few reasons basically pete there's lots of there's lots of benefits that come from i think just embracing challenge and and taking on things that you know that scare you a little bit yeah, I, I mean, you know, t- talking to you guys afterwards and, and when we caught up in, you know, London um, a, a few weeks after, I think it was interesting just listening, you know, t- to yourself, li- listening to Jamie and, and listening to Simon, you know, certainly running those 100 miles. And I think this applies to a, a lot of things that we do in life. There was, <clears throat> there was certainly a lot of learns. I mean, I know you had some, you had some high points and you had, I, had, <clears throat> I had the, the pleasure and honor of running you for about the first 13 you know the first 13 miles which was was a really interesting experience for me as well uh, and just listening to some of the the conversations and it you know you couldn't have picked a warmer day could you um to run it and that presented different uh different chances but you know what, what did you learn from some of the the points when it got really tough mentally not just physically but you know you also got, went through a mental challenge to run that amount of miles in 24 hours for sure i think you you need to prepare for it you know it shouldn't be a surprise when it gets hard i think if it if it catches you off guard then you know you've got to know what you're signing up for i think with these things you know it's going to be difficult you want it to be difficult you know so i think if you prepare yourself for that um you can approach it differently when that comes you know and so when the difficult moments came within um the 100 miles which i knew that they were going to come you've got to try and find ways to to break out of that and i think there's certain there's physical aspects of this right so there's physical discomfort that you're going to experience and that's your body aches and pains um maybe if you get your your hydration plan wrong or or your fueling plan wrong so i think you've got to get those right right you've got to make sure you keep eating keep drinking and look after your body if you can um but then it's the psychological stuff and as as you touched on i'm i'm very interested in this field and I think there's a, a question for me is like asking yourself where is your focus um I, I spent quite a bit of time you know reading about this and I've, I've found other adventurers and people who have challenged themselves on on physical stuff before often have a really good introspective view on this in terms of where their focus is and being able to sort of understand that you know there's broadly you've got internal and external and then you've got broad or narrow in terms of your focal points now if you allow your focus to be very internal and very very narrow on a particular pain that you're having right on your feet for example that's going to grow <laughs> that 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 pain will grow because your focus will heighten and and uh, any of these emotions and feelings that you're having in the, in these in these moments now what i try and do is redirect that focus you know so can i take it external can i get into a broad conversation with jamie peacock about him punching someone in the face from uh, from from his rugby days and and we'll talk about it for for an hour and he'll tell me all about it and all of a sudden that hour goes in 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 the click of a fingers uh but 
it, it is an example of taking yourself out of the moment and just giving yourself the freedom and to move away from some of the discomfort and actually just to to focus somewhere else. Other things, t tactics that I've deployed there, I think, um, you know, a, a little things like, okay, well now, I mean, if you're really suffering, how do you take um, an external focus and make it quite narrow? So Pete, looking at, you know, the, the, the lamppost that's 200 meters ahead of you and just get to that, right? And then you pick your eyes up again when you get to it and you pick another one, you just get to that. And if you just keep doing that, again, you just find a way to re remove your focus and, and move it away from something negative and move it to something maybe positive or, or optimistic or, or, or break down the task in front of yourself um, and, and start to play these games in ways that are going to help you rather than hinder you. So I think psychologically having some 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 tools at your disposal to, to be able to move where your focus is so you're not getting caught up in the negative aspect of it and you're trying to find ways to to, to be optimistic and think positively when when the difficult times come because they're going to come. Yeah. So so I'm going to I'm going to pass over to Tim now. I'm sure he's itching to ask you some questions about about your cycling. So Tim, do you want to ask Chris some questions because otherwise we're going to we're going to take the whole 30 40 minutes of the podcast just talking about the run yeah sure so talking about the run and let's just jump onto cycling a sec because currently you're, you're working with british cycling and uh, leading up their partnerships um what's just start with an easy one what, what's sort of the biggest cycling challenge you've been through just to sort of understand how that contextualizes across that's a good one i, I mean cycling I, I haven't indulged in in those challenges yet i think um it's it's an area that I'm starting to build up uh, a bit of focus on. I'm currently eyeing up um, a, an Ironman that I'm just picking when when that's going to happen. But um, I'd say most of my risk, that sort of long distance endeavours have, have been off the bike for the time being. But um, don't give me any ideas, Tim, unless you got some for me. <laughs> I have, but we won't share it today. We'll save it for later. <laughs> There's a challenge being planned for next year, which we may ask you to come and join in. Very interested. Um, but yeah, on on the cycling front, clearly you've jumped across into into British cycling. Um, what what's your immediate thoughts there in terms of that crossover between what British cycling are trying to achieve and and how that then works with industry, given you're you're trying to make those linkages across into the partnerships and the the support that comes from industry. Sure, I mean for me, cycling is incredibly unique as a sport. Um, the, the, the reason why is because it's got such an authentic place in in so many of the key sort of societal conversations that are going on at the moment you know whether we're talking about health and well-being and uh, both physical and mental whether we're talking about how to um, drive for a more inclusive and uh, diverse and inclusive society and and the the opportunities that cycling offers you know across all ages and all backgrounds um and you know as a symbol of sustainability that the bike is in terms of it's that opportunity for someone to take a choice and make a choice to potentially remove themselves from a car and, and get on the bike and i think as a result that that lends itself in a really authentic way to businesses um to to get uh, to take action and create impact around those areas that really matter i think lots of businesses want to have um want to be associated with being diverse and inclusive with being a sustainable organization with being an organization that champions health and well-being um, so we really do offer a very authentic platform to, to come and deliver some of that whether that's through their staff whether that's through the wider sort of community initiatives that British Cycling offer and and further and, and I think you know we often talk about that you can't football your way to work 
you know like there's a everyday relevance that the that, that cycling has that means it's it's more than a sport you know it's a mode of transport it's a way of getting around and um it's a way that also brings loads of other positive factors into play around someone's activity and um around their contributions to the environment so i think you know it's a really exciting property from that perspective i think the bike itself has um, a, a very important role to play in so many people's lives you know whether you're thinking about that first moment of watching your first your kids take their first pedal strokes and and the joy that comes with that um right through to the fact that it, it can be an enabler now with e-bikes in particular of of people who are maybe in their elderly years just getting around and, and feeling empowered to keep um you know doing something for themselves and and everything in between so um yeah it's got such a a, a beautiful range of, of of opportunities and you know our sport as well which is is ultimately a key part of of what i work for um our sport is diverse in itself you know you've got bmxers who are specializing in doing backflips and everything crazy that comes with that right through to those who are mountain bikers onto the road races and and then those stars that you see like your laura kenny's on the track so it's such a mixture of of talents being expressed within our sport that i just think it's it's incredibly exciting and relevant um platform for 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 brands to to come and communicate through Mm, definitely definitely so just on that sort of talking about brands and communicating through through british cycling what what's the sort of biggest learns you've had coming from a how you've built those partnerships and how you how you sell effectively how you sell out to those potential partners look i think it's a good question um I, the there's the sort of proposition that you're building when you're talking about long-term partnerships and, and these these sorts of um strategic alliances that we do you know we, we're not just talking about sponsorship here we're talking about coming together and working on shared objectives so really it's it links back to probably what you guys do in terms of sales strategy. We're looking at how do we build really valuable opportunities, and that starts with firstly listening to organisations, understanding what their motivations are, and and trying to see what uh, what what are the challenges, what are the needs that businesses are seeking to to have served through a partnership in sport, and then for us trying to construct win win. Um, strategies that that allow us to to go and deliver the things that we want to do for our strategy. Um, but but also through catering for for a brand's objectives. Now, you know, to, 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 to do these things successfully, I think fundamentally you have to be able to build that strong connection and trust with the people that you're trying to work with. We're we're selling partnerships here and ultimately partners are gonna you got they've got to want to work with you and they've got to trust you. So um for that that means that these processes can be pretty long. You know, we work in, in quite um long sales cycles we don't sort of operate it's not a particularly transactional thing it's a very sort of transformative proposition that um i think really requires us to go quite deep into the people that we're working with and uh, and the strategy that we're going to sort of deliver when we come together i think then coming back into how you know the the process that you're then going to go through it is that bit of a blend of an art and science right this is probably similar to what we've just spoken about with sport and running 100 miles you know there's certain things that you know by doing them consistently you're going to increase your probabilities of success and of course we we look to try and do that so we try and work within um, areas that that we know to be relevant to 
um, the people of cycling. So try and find relevant uh, partners and and brands who I suppose have the most to gain from a partnership with cycling. But also then there's that 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 art that I'm referring to is sometimes there's just a bit of an intuition. What what are the opportunities? What are the what's the subjective information? The feel that you have for for where opportunities might be and what um, a really good partnership could look like. So yeah, bringing that all together I think is 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 my my approach okay fantastic makes sense i mean i'm really interested to understand a bit more about when you were talking about the run you were talking about break but internalizing the pain and turning it into an external pain so you set set smaller targets or you know you're mm -hmm. talking about uh, discussing with uh, with jamie peacock and um and sort of externalizing some of the sort of interaction that you're having there so how does that translate across into some of the tangibles you've seen when you're working on say a really long sales cycle with a potential partner because clearly some of those sales cycles they're going to be months if not years aren't they i suspect for sure you're spot on i think you know in, in that game not every day is a, a great day you're not going to be celebrating a, a new partner every single day and so you've got to find ways to enjoy the process of of it all um i think you know being able to see ultimately I think it's really important to set some landmarks, you know, and to not just have the measures of success all about um, getting people over the finish line. It's a bit like the 100 miles, you know, there's going to be moments within that course where you reach that landmark and you can enjoy that and, and it motivates you. You know, that can come through how many organisations we're looking to engage with, how many um, processes we're moving through different levels of the discussion. And you do have to find ways to just enjoy and, and celebrate those successes as you move along. Um, like I said before, in terms of what are the things that are going to increase the probabilities of success, and I think setting process goals is a really good good way of doing this. You know, not just setting outcome goals, but setting those process goals. Okay, so what are the things that we're going to do consistently that we think are going to help us be more successful, more or more, more likely to be successful? You know, so like I said, how many businesses are we engaging with? How are we engaging with them? So constantly looking at the, the approach that we're taking, are there better ways of doing this based on the information that we're receiving and the feedback, you know, and uh, consistently trying to, to think in ways that see us um, build strong rapport and relationships with, with the other parties because they're not always in the market for a major investment like this, but what about in 12 months time, 18 months time, we want to make sure that they, they think of us at the first um, opportunity. So consistently trying to find ways to strengthen their hand to, to sort of really add value to the people that we're talking to, whether that's through objective information that we have and, um, you know, providing them with good data that's going to give them new information that, that helps better see the benefits for them. Um, or if there's other value that we can create that's maybe something that's low cost to us, but really high value to them, such as an experience or an interaction with one of our athletes or something that we can do that's going to really continue to build that with not necessarily the view to converting that in the immediate instance, but with as part of that long-term strategy uh, of, of how do we continue to operate at a high level, create great interactions with people um, so that when the, the opportunity does arise, we are we are in a good position to, to capitalize. Fantastic. Um, another thing you talked about, certainly from the physical sports world, was why you do this stuff is like challenge, growth, achievements. Those are words you use to sort of explain sort of what motivates you to to really go and do some of these extremely crazy things. Again, how do you bring that into the business world? What's sort of, what's the sort of tactics you've seen for you, for you personally, but also for the team around you? Because clearly, it's not just you doing this. There's a there's a big team sat in British Cycling who you're working with. 
Yeah, sure. I think that's a that can be a difficult piece, actually. I think, Tim. You know, um, this is my true self, right? And I think it's important that that version of me is is coming across because that is who I am. I love to do these things because for the reasons I mentioned, and yet I know that it's it's not for everyone. Not everyone thinks in the same way. Um, now, what I do think is that I. I do think there's some just some underlying principles within that 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 are relevant to 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 everyone right about how do you continue to try and put yourself in areas where growth is going to be more likely and how do you continue to try and learn about yourself and um learn about you know what your strengths are and, and continue to build on those strengths i think you know i've often talked about um two c's um competence right there's an area here tim where there is just we've all got to have competency and we've got to have a decent understanding of what it takes to to do our jobs well and um that's the same in sport you know you've got to reach a, a level of competency where you know ultimately you're able and capable of running 100 miles i then think the other c is about confidence so for me i think a really big part of of how i try and bring something into to work that i've taken from sport is how do i help people see their strengths you know and how do i help people continue to grow their confidence and that sometimes comes from you know feedback and 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 providing information or 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 also the sort of environment that i can try and create as a leader um i also like to think that that comes sometimes from from pushing people to discover their own abilities you know and putting people into opportunities and providing them with platforms to try and test themselves and that's supposed comes from my own attitude towards what i've found so valuable for myself in in a development sense um and and trying to you know give people that opportunity to in, improve their competencies and develop and but then fundamentally to to build that confidence in themselves through testing themselves and putting them into to new positions and opportunities that are going to see them uh, exposed to different different challenges yeah so just leading on from that's a great example i think that competence and confidence as to how to sort of assess how when you when you're working with us how do you know whether it is confidence or competence or a mixture how do you know that yeah i think um that's a really good question as well i mean that's that can be difficult you know i think uh, particularly when you're you know just working with people for the first time um i think in in sales you know that i i think it comes down to looking at objective measures where possible you know, do we understand the the product well enough? Do we have the data that's going to demonstrate whether we're being successful or unsuccessful? And are there areas that are clearly highlighting that that we need to improve? Um, now, within all of that, you then have to make some subjective assessments of of where people's strengths are and whether they're aligned with the areas that we need them to be. Um, but look, that that can be one of the hardest areas in sales, I think. Um, but I. I, I really do try and zone in on it. I think it's really important to constantly be um, or continuously be trying to evolve our own awareness and knowledge in this space. I think with with, with sales, I've, there's some amazing literature out there for the for the basics and, and getting yourself um, that sort of clear understanding of what, what are the fundamentals of, of sales. Um, I love to turn this question around, Tim, and ask you guys, what, what do you think those are? I think a, one that springs to my mind is um, the Roger Fisher book, Getting to Yes, is a very good starting point for people who want to work in sales, is understanding um, principled negotiation, understanding the ways of, of working through 
um, a, a really considered sales process um, is really important if you're going to be successful in sales. Um, but yeah, guys, what what would you say? Where where would you be pointing people to to get the fundamentals? I, Chris, I mean, you've you, you've sh- you've shared some great insight sort of insights. Then I, I think on the sort of previous podcast, you know, interviewing a sales, you know, we were we were talking about this. I, personally, I think it starts with the the mindset of the individual. You know, I think to be successful in selling, you know, selling is probably one of the best careers you can have um, because you get some real highs. But I think it, it it involves a lot of grunt work. There's a lot of hard work to be successful. I think there's a lot of hard work to be successful in anything. And I think this is why it's really <clears throat> intriguing to talk to you. you. You talked about some of the, the physical challenges and you talked about your the, why you've done it and how far you can push yourself. I think, you know, people perform at a level where they get comfortable, but I think to get to the next level, you've got to get uncomfortable, sorry, you've got to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable uh, most of the time. I think um, <clears throat> following a process is so important. I mean, <clears throat> I've I've spoken to salespeople in the past who've said, I've got some magic sauce, I've got a winning personality, but that's not a that's not scalable and you can't, you know, I, I can't recreate your, I can't copy your personality or, or Tim's personality. Um, but I do know is that if you follow, if salespeople follow process and <clears throat> they also ask the right questions, I mean, you, you've talked about some of your potential partners not need, or not having the money to invest for maybe 18 months, two years, but during that long sales cycle, <clears throat> you're still nurturing and adding value and having conversations and you've got to, you know, in your world, I think you've got to be able to match the right partner who's going to get some value into that partnership with you. So that that that's probably my start pretending. I mean, it's a subject we could we could talk about for days. But I'm interested to hear Tim's insights as well. Okay, so it's a good good question, Chris. I think, and when you talked about some of the literature you referred to, which I agreed, some good stuff there. You can teach the theory of how to sell or negotiate or whatever you want in a few hours. The theory is quite simple. And then it comes down to why does it not get applied? And the why it doesn't get applied can be multiple, but it can be it can be that competence, which, you know, I translate that across into so what's what's the person's behaviors? And because that's the competence, it's like, are they have they got the right ability to listen? Have they got the right ability to talk? Have they got the right sort of ability to to actually be interested in the client? They're they're all behaviors that we need people to have and then you're down to mindset and their personality so have they got the commitment to really push themselves and drive themselves to be a successful salesperson not just expected to fall on the lap like many seem to do (laughs) Um, and then you're down to like have you got the positive outlook have you got the the externalization of things so that you're not constantly dwelling on the fact that we didn't win that deal last week and it you know, but we are going to win the one this week. And it's like looking at the future and breaking down the bigger goals into smaller milestones. I think all of that is where where sales becomes an interesting crossover into sort of the psychology of how do you make a good sports person? Because I suspect, I suspect in British cycling, there's there's lots of people who want to get into the British cycling team and there'll be some who are naturally gifted and, you know, they'll have some natural ability, but have they got that absolute killer commitment to make it happen? Because I'm not going to name any names on this, but you can see sort sports people in all sorts of sport, and they look like they've got major talent, but do they really make it to the top level? And I always believe that the difference between like world class success and you're just pretty good at this 
is probably all in your head. It's probably not down to some natural ability that they were born with. It's probably down to that like determined desire to be the best they can be and all the hard work that comes with that. So I think that's where the crossover between sales and, and the, the sports world does come across. Really interesting that, Tim. I think uh, you made some great points there. I think that last one um, about the psychology of it and dealing with um, disappointment in sales and dealing with disappointment in sport, there, there are some real similarities there. You know, like uh, when you when you put in a hell of a lot of work and you don't get the outcome that you're looking for um, in sales, picking yourself up and, and going again can be very difficult. And that's why I think you do have to, again, prepare for it. You mustn't just be surprised when things don't go perfectly. I think um, I, I remember I'll, I'll go back to when I was on the, the row, right? And for the first three days when I tried to row across the Atlantic Ocean, I had the worst seasickness ever. I couldn't I couldn't stomach any food at all. I couldn't hold anything down. And um, it was getting to the point, to be honest with you guys, where it was really really worrying. We thought, you know, this is we we might have to to call in support here because literally I couldn't eat or drink anything. You're rowing. Um, between you, you someone's rowing the whole time, so you're rowing 12 hours a day minimum, um, and I, I wasn't able to eat or drink anything. So I'm three days in, and every time I tried to drink anything or have something, I, it was coming straight back up again. And we decided, myself and Max, decided that every time I was going to be ill from that moment forwards, that we would celebrate it. Right? We We started celebrating every time I was ill. And... About six hours later, it went away. And it was the most remarkable thing that as soon as we switched our mentality from being worried and negative about it to let's have a laugh with this, let's just embrace it and find a way to be positive about it, it actually went away. And look, that's just one example, but what a powerful story I find that to be of of how your perspective on um, the challenges that you're facing completely dictate your own you know, response to it, right? And so by being negative about it, my my body was continuing to be negative about it. By being positive about it, my body decided to, to let it go and overcome it. And look, it might have been coincidence, but I've had other instances in my life, right, where when something doesn't go our way, we we celebrate it, you know? We, we gave it we know that we gave it what we needed to do. It wasn't to be, we'll take some learnings from this, but let's let's enjoy the fact that we gave it a go. You know, and whether that's losing on, on the sports field, um, or whether that's not, or, or coming up short and not getting the end result that you want in in business in sales. Look, it's not something that we want to do all the time, but finding a way to turn that into a, a more positive story um, is important for motivating yourself moving forwards and getting out of that situation in a positive way, rather than letting that beat you down. Because yeah, it can be it can be very difficult to overcome those moments, but I think that's the difference between you know, very good salespeople and, and, and maybe sort of talented salespeople is, you know, how, how willing are you going to be to play the long game here and keep going when it's not going your way? Yeah, very true. So, so, um, Chris, you know, in sort of your, you've got a, you know, vast array of sort of experience. I mean, you know, it's, it's really interesting listening to, you know, your motivation for doing physical challenge and the, the stuff that you're involved in now, particularly with, with long sales cycles. But if, you know, we, we have quite a few people listening to the podcast who are probably new into either a sales management or sales leadership role. What What's the sort of one nugget of advice you would give to somebody if they were starting out leading or managing other people, which can be, can be really challenging for some people? 
Yeah, I think for me, it's not going to be rocket science, sadly, Pete. I think you've got to get bought in to the vision, right? Where are we trying to get to? I think projecting yourself to a moment in the future um, at team level, right? So it's a collective objective of where do we want to get to? Being able to articulate that vision, I think, is super important. And then I'm someone who is a massive believer in having some frameworks, some consistent framework for, you know, how, how are we going to structure this? You know, how what, what's the methodology that's going to drive this success? And try and keep that as simple as possible. And, you know, since we've been a British Cycle, we've developed something that we call the bike model, Pete. So the bike model is something that we want to drive our partnerships. The bike bike's pretty simple, right? The front wheel tells you where you're going. Okay, and that's your vision and your objectives, your partnership. And the back wheel is what powers it. You know, that's where the force is going through. The back wheel is the, the objective strategy. So how are we going to get there? And what are the things that we're going to do that are going to get us there? And and for me, having something that, that people can unite around, um, where we can all see the, the, the vision, but also we can all see the process that we're committing to. And then finally, uh, you know, something that I'm, I wouldn't say I've perfected at all, but I think believe to be really important is, is buy-in around a collective set of behaviors and standards. You know, what, 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 do, what are the things that we all agree are gonna make us successful? And let's buy into that. And let's, let's consistently um, pursue those. Now look, some days you might come up short. So for example, one of those for me, Pete, is just to give something literal to think about is we should add value at every interaction, right? And that, that's the standard. You know, so that that's the standard to set yourself. So that every time I'm going to meet with a brand, or every time I'm going to um, interact with a prospect, I want to make sure I leave them with some value, and that might be in the form of I don't know if you've ever seen this report, but I thought it might be really interesting to you. We've we've created this for you, or you 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 create something physical, whether that's a a nice leave behind in the form of a a little brochure or a notepad that they can now carry around with them. But add value in some way at every interaction. Now that if you set that as your standard consistently, every time you meet with someone, you're giving them something. You know you're you're strengthening their hand, and and I think that that sort of is one example of I'd say you want to have your six or seven key behaviors that are going to continue like that compound into a really um, positive uh, and sort of constructive journey as a team. I think that also helps you then Pete and, and Tim identify where there's where there's gaps and where, where you guys need to maybe improve um, is because if there's certain areas that you've all agreed are really important, but there's certain areas within that that you're that people are consistently coming up short at, it shows you what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. You talk about uh, leave value wherever as a as a concept as a behaviour. Leave value wherever you go. Um, and again, we have we work with lots of clients clearly, um, and often when you talk about leaving things behind. Uh, it's often translated straight into what you talked about on the second point, which was like, you know, like a notebook or something like that. But I think more importantly, and people really value when you leave behind ideas or insight or reports or, you know, just a different perspective that they can you can share with them that makes them think differently or perhaps challenges something that they're currently doing or gives them a new way of looking at a problem that they've got. All of those are adding value, but they don't actually cost anything material in terms of like, I have to pay for a branded notebook, for example. And I think that often gets missed. I think those things are really important. For sure. I think that comes back to one of the things I think I said right at the start around the, the running around preparation. You know, I think if you can understand the motivations, there's things that you can find that are really relevant to the person or the, the business that you're speaking to that show that you care and they show. And that, again, comes back to how we build trust. 
you know, because it shows that you've put in the time to understand what might be important to them. And by the way, look, have a look at this. I've dug out this this research that's specifically relevant to yourselves or to your your um, industry or sector. Um, and it just shows that additional work that's gone in behind the scenes. And I think that's really important if you're going to try and build a a really respectful relationship with someone is to show that you actually are going above and beyond um, just, you know, maybe that interaction, but you're putting in that time, you're putting in that work to to, to demonstrate the, the value that you can create. Yeah, completely. Pete, I'm out of questions, I think, at this point. Yeah, so, uh, um, Chris, I'd just like to say um, thanks so much for joining us on the, uh, the podcast today. I think you showed some real... Um, real insights from you know both the run you're involved with recycling uh, some real nuggets for people who are involved in in sales or whatever level of, of sales are they're, they're involved in I, I, I love the the fact you talked about you know demonstrating value in every interaction you have with somebody and leaving them with with value I think there's lots of organizations and salespeople who don't do that in terms of interactions they have with the, the prospects um, <clears throat> but I, I, I'd like to finish if you've got time. What, what is this story from the Atlantic? <laughs> oh, Pete, you don't know what you're you're getting yourself into if you said <laughs> if you've got time. Um, I still haven't quite sussed out the the real short version of this story, Pete. But 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 what happened was um, so what year were we? It was twenty seventeen, um, and uh, I I set out to row across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, it was a the, the sort of culmination of a big project and preparation with a good mate of mine, a guy called Max Thorpe, an amazing um, athlete in his own right. He, he's a true adventurer, really. Um, and I, I suppose was my inspiration to, to start doing these sorts of things. Um, we, we, we set off uh, on the, I believe it was the 13th of December, and we left the Canary Islands with a view to the next time we were going to meet land was going to be in Antigua. Um, at that time, I think the world record for a crossing like that was about 38, 39 days um, in, a, in a rowing boat. Uh, these boats are about seven, eight meters long. They are a matter of, you know, hundred, a couple of hundred kilos. They're not, they're not massive boats. They, they're amazing things though. They've got a, a small cabin for storage. Then there's a small cabin for yourselves and your equipment to sort of be in, in terms of your navigation equipment and um, where you're going to, where you're going to sleep at, at night when you, when you do find a moment to kip. Um, and they're self-writing as well. So if they get tipped upside down, which you can expect to happen out in the middle of the Atlantic, they, they bob themselves back upright and they're amazing boats. So that's what we set out in. We, we, we went to row um, over to the Caribbean. Now, we were, we were subject to some incredible conditions. It was what's renowned now as, I think it's the most severe conditions that the race has ever seen. This race takes place, it was the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. It takes place every year in December, um, runs over the new year and and for, for however long it takes for people to arrive over in, into the Caribbean. And um, so far, fewer people have rode the Atlantic than have climbed Everest. It's one of these incredibly rare um, feats that, that, that only a, a small amount of people around the world have, have ever completed. And so taking this on was an amazing uh, moment for me. I, it, was a, it was a huge, huge challenge that, that really pushed me beyond anything that I'd ever done before. And so we, we got to a point about nine days in we were tracking um, well well ahead of world record pace, and that's not just through sheer sort of physical um, reasons behind that. The, the, the conditions that we had were so severe that we were going incredibly quickly. 
um, the 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 waves and the the winds that we had behind us were were some like nothing they'd ever seen before. And what that also meant was that there was a much heightened level of risk around um, around capsize and around some of the things that can happen when you're out in the middle of the ocean. So um, what happened on that 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 ninth tenth day was we were capsized. Um, a massive wave came and hit us and picked our boat up, threw us upside down and um, anyway, everything seemed to sort of go all right at this point. We, we, the boat righted itself, we managed to get ourselves back on board. We pulled our oars in so that we could get ourselves organized and anyway, we opened up our cabin hatch to get into the cabin um, to, to make contact, to, to tell people that we we're okay because when you get um, capsized, it sends an emergency message back to, to shore. It, it basically, once your boat goes upside down, it, it, until you correct it, it, it sends out an emergency signal. So the emergency signal was beamed out and we go into the cabin to try and get the, uh, the satellite phone out to, to make contact and say everything's okay and, and our cabin's on fire. So we're now in the middle of the Atlantic in, in an Atlantic storm and our cabin's on fire. Um, there's no boats there's within hundreds of miles of us that are capable of, of a rescue operation and um, we managed to, at this point, get about extinguishing the flames. We had a fire extinguisher on the boat Max kindly unloaded the first half of the fire extinguisher into his groin whilst he was trying to uh, direct it towards the fire. But then um, he managed to switch it around once he figured out how to work it, and we and we got the the fire out. Um, but it put us in a position where we were now in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, you know, I think we were seven hundred and fifty miles off the west coast of Africa. That was the nearest land, um, and. We, we we now had um, a toxic fire in our cabin, so we could no longer go in our cabin. Even once it was extinguished, it was full of toxic fumes and a battery acid because the fire that had been caused was from a, a smashed car battery, which was being used to power all of our equipment. Um, so we had to initiate a rescue operation. It was just like the most, you know, gut-wrenching moment, you know, when you realise that everything that you've been working towards for a couple of years comes back to this point about dealing with difficult moments this was one um two years worth of hard work and preparation and a lot of money and time had gone into getting us to where we were and we were on track to go and break the world record and now it all sunk in that you know this is going to be the end of our this is going to be the end of our challenge here in the middle of the ocean um we're not going to make it to to the caribbean and i had these extremely strong emotions at that moment um of, of negativity of, of overwhelming sort of upset that then quickly realized were were not serving us in the slightest because we're now facing these we're still in the midst of an atlantic storm we're in these what are like force nine conditions which is a near hurricane like conditions in the middle of the ocean and there was just no time to be upset about it we had to deal with the situation that was in front of us so i remember pretty much like a switch was hit where i went from being so upset that i felt like i could break down in tears to just putting that to the back of our minds and just dealing with the situation that was in front of us so look it was an incredible experience from a from that side of things reflecting on the emotional journey that we went through but what happened over the next 18 hours was um we, we stayed out at sea we were fighting the conditions for uh for until it got dark so this happened about midday and then the, the the light started to fade at around 8 p.m so we were fighting the waves up on deck for about eight hours and then we realized we needed to get somewhere a bit safer by by the time the dark came so we we tucked ourselves into our storage cabin and um this storage cabin was only a small little hub but um we got in there and we we waited it out and 
after another further, I think it was 3 a.m. in the morning, we started to see some lights appearing on the horizon and um, an oil tanker had come as our, as, as our rescue vessel. So this oil tanker starts to pull up alongside us and we're in this seven meter long boat and this oil tanker is 250 meters long, 110,000 tons. Um, and the sea wall is 20 meters high and all they threw down to, <laughs> to get us out of there was uh, they threw down one rope and one rope ladder. <laughs> and um, what followed was a very hairy rescue experience that involved um, me losing a couple of teeth and um, me almost losing a good friend in Max when he slipped his, his way back into the ocean and they had to pretty much fish him out with a, uh, with, <laughs> with a ladder. And, and we went through this just unbelievable rescue moment um, that I, I'll have to share some videos with you guys mm. to, to really do it justice. But, um, and, and then we were pulled aboard. And so I then spent the next three weeks of my life back in uh, across Christmas and New Year on, on an oil tanker that took us down to Brazil and decompressing after a, a pretty crazy experience there. So, yeah, it was a, a wild day um, out on the ocean, mate, and uh, one that will live long in the memory. That's more than a wild <laughs> That's day. A great, um, a great story to uh, to finish with. So th thanks once again, Chris. And if people, uh, for joining our podcast this week, and if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way of, uh, of reaching out to you and, and connecting with you? Yeah, probably best just to, to, to try and connect on LinkedIn. If people want to follow up and have a chat with me, I'm, I'm there. So, yeah, Chris Williams on LinkedIn. I'm sure, Pete, you, you, you can tag me if yeah, if sure. you've got my connection. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for having me, guys. It's been great to chat to you. Yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been great. So thank you very much, Chris, for being our guest on this week's Creating Sales Stars podcast. And thanks for Tim to being uh, our co-host this week as well. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Cheers, guys. Cause I'm a sales star, a sales star, yeah I'm a sales star, a sales star Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Salesstar and hosted by Pete Evans. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, then please get in touch. You can find us on all social media platforms by searching for Salesstar UK. 